Evening, everyone. How many of you like the sun that's still shining out there? Pretty nice. That is, nobody likes losing the hours of sleep, but I'll take the lost hour for the sunlight. How about you? Some of you might have said, no, not me. (laughs) All right, you know where we're going, right? Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 2 tonight. And while you're flipping there, how many of you, did anybody not get a handout tonight? I decided I've just been having lousy luck with the technology, and so I decided we're going to go back to paper and pencil, all right? So we're giving out a handout tonight. Anybody not get one that would like to have one? All right. You don't know where those extras are, do you, do I know that... Anybody know where the extras went to? Actually, I got one right here. I got an extra one right here in my hand. Blanks filled in. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, let me ask you to pray for a prayer request for me, if you would. Tomorrow, uh, I get to, I'm going with Pastor Nathan Lipscomb from Shenandoah. Anybody else need one? We just found some more. All right, I think we're good. Thank you very much, Derek. Tomorrow, I am going up to, anybody ever heard of what's called Capital Connection? There's a church in Clinton, Maryland that has a ministry that they take a group of pastors into the Capitol once a year, it's every year about this time, and the whole purpose of it is to get um, pastors from all over the state of Virginia, and really all over the country. Some pastors fly all the way out from California, and the whole point is to try to go into the capital and meet your delegates, to try to meet up with your state senators. And so several months ago, we scheduled some meetings with some of our delegates, and so we're going to be meeting with them on Tuesday. And you can do this, by the way. It doesn't have, you don't have to be a pastor, or you can call your elected officials office and you can schedule a meeting with them uh, not they don't they're not always available and a couple of them were still trying to uh, the senators for some reason didn't want to see us i wonder if you can imagine that but anyway we've got some some meetings lined up for tuesday and so you pray for us that we'll have uh, wisdom and the right words the lord wants us to say to these men and ladies as well and that god can use it to encourage them uh, those who are standing for truth, that, that God can use it to, to change those who are not. And so you pray for us. We're excited about the chance to do that. But they're expecting over a 1,000 pastors from around the U.S. to come and to kind of flood cap- the capital. And so I'm excited about Tuesday. But you pray for us, all right, that God will bring fruit from the short and few words that we'll have the privilege of sharing with those uh, men and women, all right? All right, if you got a handout, we are in Chapter 2 of Revelation, and we get to start tonight going through these seven churches. And and I I told you this back at the beginning of us going through Revelation. I kind of joked after the, I think it was after the first message, and I said, man, if we go at this pace, it's going to take something like 252 sermons or something. And I really meant it when I said I was going to try not to go at that pace every Sunday night. But he, I, I think one of the reasons I felt like I should not try to rush through, I don't want to rush through any of it, but at the same time, I don't want to take 250 Sunday nights to go through the book of Revelation, okay? However, I think one of the reasons it's so important for us to especially go slowly through the first three chapters is because those are the three chapters that practically apply to us, the church. They all are important for us, right? When you get to chapter four and we're looking at the future, and we get to see the end of the story. Boy, that ought to motivate us and move us. It ought to encourage us to do that song that we just sang, right? Be watching for the Lord. Be ready for the Lord. 
But chapter 1, 2, and 3, especially, are written practically to the church, right? To you and me, where we live today, that God can impact the way that we're living, the way that we're serving, being ready for the moment he comes back to take us home. And we're going to go through, I I thought about doing two churches a Sunday night, but I just don't think I'm going to do that. So we're going to go through one church each Sunday night for the next seven, or of course we'll have revival meetings, so seven or eight weeks. But tonight we get to look at the church at Ephesus. And before we jump in there on your notes, I kind of wanted to just give you four, four things to keep in mind as we go through each of these churches, all right? And let me just kind of read them off to you here. The first one is this. Remember that these seven churches represent the whole body of Christ. These are literally written to literally seven churches, but they are representative of the entire body of Christ, okay? There have been churches with these characteristics, and some even go, and this is true, there are individuals in churches with these characteristics. There are people in this church right now who are going through suffering, right? There are people in this church who are just serving to the point of exhaustion in the church. And, and you can go through all of these different characteristics of these churches that we're going to study, and it, many of them will apply to you. Number two, these letters are intended to be heard and applied throughout all church history. Look down at the end of, uh, look down at verse 7 in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and look down at verse 7. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the who? Churches, right? Plural. Now you say, wait a minute. I thought this letter was written to the church at Ephesus. And it is. But the point is, the message that was written to the church at Ephesus was intended for all of the churches, right? For instance, that's one of the reasons I believe the Lord wrote all seven of these letters and delivered them to all seven of the churches, right? He didn't just want Ephesus to get the information, though it was directly and practically written to their situation. He knew there were probably people in the church at Ephesus that were struggling with some of the things the church at Smyrna was struggling with. And so even though these are written to seven churches that were existing 1,900 years ago, they apply to you and to me, all right? Number three, the problems these churches faced and the temptations that they struggled with were directly connected to the environment that they lived in. In other words, the culture, right? Boy, one of the things I am reminded of as I studied through this part of the book of Revelation is we have to be so careful, don't we, not to let the culture influence the church. The Bible is timeless, isn't it? The truth that was written 2,000 plus years ago is applicable today. We, we talk about this a lot more talking about missions. The Bible is cross-cultural, right? In other words, we don't let culture come into the church. Let me back up. We shouldn't let culture come into the church and change the word of God. Sadly, that's happening all over the place, isn't it? Where people are caving into culture instead of testing culture by the pages of the word of God. One of the things we see as we study through this is how easy it is, even in the, really the first century church, to start to cave into culture. 
or at least to certainly to suffer and to struggle because of the culture that they lived in. Number four, keep in mind that these letters are from Christ himself through John. Jake Hampton Kilfee said, Jesus is the author of each letter, the authority of each message, and the answer for the problem in each church. And that's very true, isn't it? So with those four things in mind, that this is applicable to you and to me, let's go to the first church tonight, all right? The church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse number 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray, all right? And then we'll look at this church tonight. Father, we are we're in need of your help tonight, just as we are every time we meet. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, speak in spite of me. And, Lord, I pray that you would change us. This is, Lord, obviously of utmost importance to you. The message you're trying to teach us through this letter to the church at Ephesus. And I know in my own life, and I'm certain many of my friends would say the same, Lord, it is something that we need to confront in our lives on a regular basis. Lord, may we not just be busy in the church. May we not just be serving and working and laboring, but Lord, may we truly be loving you. And so I pray tonight that you would help us to see if that is true in our lives. And Lord, if not, may we truly go back to doing the most important thing, and that is having a thriving, real, loving relationship with you, the Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Um, if you, uh, when you read through the church at Ephesus, it, is, it truly would have been, um, from the outside looking in, this would have been the example church, right? In fact, it really was the example church in Ephesus. If you remember, this is the first church that was planted in Asia, Minor. Paul, in fact, boy, man, when you, and we'll look at that in a minute. When you look at all of the faithful Christians who had a part in this church getting started, no wonder we read about all of these wonderful things the Lord talks about in this church. But here's my question to you tonight. Is it possible to have a thriving, seemingly on fire, serving, laboring, I mean, faithfully, doctrinally faithful church and still not be pleasing to the Lord. 
And that's an almost, it's almost hard to imagine that, isn't it? Because sometimes we think if we're just doing a lot of things and if we're just accomplishing a lot of tasks and if we're just working really hard, that that is all that God wants. Well, don't, I don't want to say what isn't in the scripture because the Lord is encouraging them and he's claiming his approval for all of those things. But he finds a problem in the church that I think in our culture is so easy to struggle with, and it's this. Even though this church in Ephesus was a busy church, there was one major problem. Ephesus was the church that had left its first love. Had left its first love. First of all, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. We see number one on your notes there, the recipients of the letter. The recipients of the letter. Verse 1 tells us that unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Here you go. Letter A on your notes. The angel of the church. All right. So the, the letter is specifically written to the angel of the church. And we talked about this last Sunday night that I believe and I think scripture teaches that these are representative of the leadership or the pastors, the overseers of the church at Ephesus. All right. And these uh, words that John is writing down, he's supposed to deliver to the angel of the church. And by the way, this is true with every single one of the seven letters. They are all written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. You say, well, why, why doesn't God write the letter specifically to the whole church at Ephesus? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that God has an order that he operates, isn't it? Doesn't he? God's order has always been that God gives his message to leadership and they communicate that message to man. Thankfully, the apostles and the prophets got God's message, wrote it down, and gave it to us, right? Now, we're at the end of, of course, John writing the last book of the canon of Scripture. So one last time, God gives a message to John, and he sends it unto his leadership of the church, and the leaders of the church are supposed to give it to the people. Again, we don't have printing presses, right? If uh, I don't know if we have time to do it, but look at chapter 1 again. Look at verse number, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that what? Hear. Hear, right? Here's a first century church service. Not everybody in the pew is getting to look at a Bible, right? The leader of the church is reading possibly the only copy of the scripture they had in the, in the place. And everybody in the pew is listening, right? What a blessing we have to have the word of God in our hands. But here in the first century church, God says that John is supposed to send the letter to the angel or the leader, the pastor, the literally the messenger, and to give it to the people. You say, why is that important? Take your Bible just for a minute. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, will you? 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, this is the pattern that God sets in every one of these letters. And so I wanted to take just a minute tonight and sort of go back and think through why that is. God is the one that created the position of overseer or pastor, isn't he? It was a position of authority, but more than authority, it's a position of responsibility and accountability, isn't it? In other words, don't you find it interesting that God 
writes a letter to the leader of the church and sort of says, you're accountable for what this church is doing and if this church is going to change. It's, I'll be honest with you, it's almost, whoa, from a pastor's perspective, it's almost, it's very sobering. James is the one that says to us, Be not, don't desire many masters because those that teach are under greater condemnation. Boy, those of us that have the privilege of spending extra hours every week studying the scriptures to come and stand in a pulpit and proclaim the truth, God says there's even a stronger judgment, accountability that we have because we have the privilege of getting to do that. You have to go work nine to five jobs, right? We get to, go, not that we don't work jobs. I, I went to, when I first came to Central Baptist Church, there's a little redheaded boy. His name is Daniel, and he comes up to me and he says, I'm going to be a pastor. And I said, oh, that's great, Daniel. And he, I, said, I said, when did you know you want to be a pastor? He's like, oh, my granddaddy told me I should be a pastor. He said, well, I said, well, why do you want to be a pastor? He says, you only have to work one day a week. That's why I want to be a pastor. I said, well, that's not really the way it works, Daniel. But we get to take extra time studying the word of God. But see, here's the thing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse number 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You see there underneath the angel of the church, number one, God holds the leadership of the church accountable, number one, for feeding the flock. These angels, these pastors of these seven local churches, God was going to hold them accountable for giving this message that John gave them to give it to the people. And it hasn't changed in 1,900 years. God holds, and folks, listen, this is what makes me so burdened for the church today. Because there are pastors who will get up in pulpits and will not preach the Bible. They will not do it, and you know why they won't do it? Because they're afraid of the people in the pew. And folks, it cannot be that way. I'm not talking about getting up and being mean or being rude. But I'm talking about preachers who will get up in pulpits and will preach the word of God. Who will preach the truth. And by the way, in each of these letters, almost all of them, there is praise for what the church, but there's also correction for what needs to be changed. And so here's Peter teaching the pastors. And he says, boy, God's going to hold you accountable, number one, for feeding the flock. Number two, for overseeing the flock. We see that in verse number two. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint, but willingly. If you look under number two there, overseeing the flock, I wrote down two things. Overseeing the flock voluntarily, right? Not by constraint. Pastor Frank Hall, you have to be the pastor of this church. Boy, that would be sad, wouldn't it? It'd be sad for him, but it would really be sad for you. You have to be the pastor of this church. You don't have a choice. Sadly, again, throughout history, in some denominations, that has been the case. That's not the way God intended it. He said, 
that a pastor is supposed to take the oversight of a church without constraint, without force, voluntarily, but then secondly, overseeing not just voluntarily, but oversee the flock willingly. Willingly. What's the difference in voluntarily and willingly? If we said God's will, we often say it's what God wants, right? God's desire. All right, I could volunteer to be a pastor, and I could do it without anybody forcing me, but inside I could be going, I don't really want to be doing this, right? And God says, listen, these leaders of these seven churches and the leaders of every church since are supposed to take the, feed the flock. They're supposed to take the oversight voluntarily. No one made me do it, and willingly, because I want desire to be in that position. Remember what Jesus said through, through Paul to Timothy? If a man desire the office of a bishop, right? He desires a good thing. And listen, it's okay not to desire to be a pastor. Go serve the Lord in some other field. But boy, if you desire to be a pastor, to be in leadership of a church, follow that desire. Number three, not just feeding the flock, not just overseeing, but leading. Leading the flock. That same passage, 1 Peter 5, verse number 3, says, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being, what's the next word? In samples. Basically, the idea of examples to the flock. Not lords, but leaders. Leading by example and leading by following. I love that passage because when you get down to verse 5, It says, and when the, who shall appear? The chief shepherd. I may have told you wrong, maybe it's verse four. When the chief shepherd shall appear. In other words, a pastor's responsibility is to feed the flock, oversee the flock, and to lead the flock. But the pastor leads by example, yes, but he leads by following, right? I know we've said this before, but we're not here to build a kingdom. This is Christ's church, as we saw when we studied that vision back in chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 2 of Revelation, all right? The recipient of the letter, first of all, is letter A, the angel of the church. But letter B, it is intended to be through that messenger for the church as a whole, and we know that. Letter B, it's intended to be for the church of Ephesus. When you study about this city, it's a pretty amazing city. This was a city of, they think, around this time between 30 and 40,000 people. Okay, so we say, well, goodness, that's not a huge city today. Well, that was a big city in Bible days. This city was a free city. It was under Roman control, but they actually gave the city of Ephesus freedom, which meant there were no Roman guards posted inside of this city. They had their own security force. They had major roads that went through the city that had access to really the rest of the country through Ephesus. This city was very wealthy. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world were in this city, the the temple to the goddess Diana, which was all centered around their false worship. And boy, when you think about a church that was blessed, it was a church at Ephesus. Let me read something to you. This is a description of just how blessed the church at Ephesus was in its founding. Perhaps no church in history had as rich a heritage as the congregation at Ephesus. The gospel was introduced to that city by Paul's close friends and partners in ministry, Priscilla and Aquila. 
They were soon joined by the eloquent preacher and powerful debater Apollos in Acts chapter 18. Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos laid the groundwork for Paul's ministry in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul stopped by briefly in Ephesus near the end of his second missionary journey, but his real ministry in that key city took place on his third missionary journey. Arriving in Ephesus, he first encountered a group of Old Testament saints, followers of John the Baptist. After preaching the gospel to them, he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 19. And we go on and on about Paul's ministry, right? Paul's ministry comes to an end. Paul's protege, Timothy, served as pastor of the church of Ephesus, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Onesiphorus, 2 Timothy chapter 1, had a part in this church. Tychicus, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Two more of Paul's fellows of the early church and... Historically, we believe the Apostle John was a pastor of this church before he was taken prisoner and sent to the island of Patmos. Now think about all of those men that we would say were faithful servants of God in the scriptures who had a part in the founding, the establishing, and the growth of this church. No wonder... When we come to the letter of Ephesus, or to the church of Ephesus, 40 years after Paul goes into the city, no wonder you've got all these praises the Lord gives about this church, right? Because, boy, what a foundation to be built on than these great apostles. And so the recipients of this church, we find, are the pastor, and then certainly through that pastor, the congregation. Number two, the author of the message. The author of the message. And we don't need to spend much time here because you know who it is, right? The Bible says, chapter 2, verse number 1, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Who's that? Well, that takes us back to chapter 1, doesn't it? Every one of these churches is introduced to us by the author in some imagery, and almost all of them, it's imagery directly from that vision of chapter 1. This first one starts off by saying, this letter is from Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Hey, listen, this letter is from the one that holds those pastors in his hand. He's the one with the authority. He's the one with the message. And he's just sending it through them to these people, right? Number two, he doesn't just, not just the one that holds the stars, but he says, the one that walketh in the midst of, of the seven golden candlesticks. Here's Jesus doing what we visualized in chapter one, right? And the author is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. John is the human writer. You see that underneath letter B. John is the human writer, but the Lord Jesus is the heavenly author. John is the human writer. That's why we see in chapter two, verse one, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. But who sang it? These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his hand. By the way, this is what the Apostle Paul did often. He was in jail, didn't he? He wrote a letter to a certain church, but he penned it by the hand of someone else. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing here. This is Jesus' message to the church, simply written down by the Apostle Paul. Number three. The description of the church. And this is the part that's so applicable and practical for us. Look at chapter 2, verse number 2. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. 
and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Hey, I would say that is quite a list of accomplishments, wouldn't you? Listen, not just from anyone, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Letter A underneath number three. Here is the approval of the church of Ephesus. Jesus describes this church in two ways. Number one, he says, I'm going to describe the things I approve, and then I'm going to describe the things that are the problems in this church. And he gives two whole verses filled with approval. In fact, it's really three verses of things he approves about this church. And I'm going to go through them quickly. You see there's eight blanks there on your sheet. Number one is the word works. He says, I know thy works. And that word works, as you see in parentheses, is the idea of their actual deeds, the things they have accomplished. Hey, that's a, that's a, man, when you start thinking back through the history of a church and you think about the, the things they have accomplished, and it's an exciting thing to do, isn't it? You think back to the, I think back to this church, it's 15, what, 17 years ago. When they were building this building, right? And I was a little kid over at Barterbrook Road Baptist Church there on that little tiny white church on the hill. And God grew this church and has probably tripled the attendance since then. And we look at all the many, many other accomplishments and achievements and works. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's an encouraging thing to do, right? And the Lord Jesus looks down at the church and says, I know what you've accomplished for me. But not just what you've accomplished, verse number two. I know not just your works. I know thy labor. What's the difference in works and labor? Works are the accomplishments. Labor is the effort, right? Um, I think about this, uh, even I think back to the Christmas play when the Sunday school classes were doing the Christmas presentation, right? We accomplished it. We put on the Christmas play, right? But many people don't know all the labor that's behind that, right? All of that effort that goes into it. Here's what Jesus says. I know what you've accomplished, and I know all the work you put in to accomplish. Aren't you thankful there's a God in heaven who is in the midst of this church? And he not only knows what you've accomplished for the Lord, he knows how much work you've done to accomplish that. And he acknowledges that. He recognizes that in the church of Ephesus. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 2, he says, I know thy works. I'm thy labor, how much effort it took, and thy patience. And that certainly is the word endurance. See, it's one thing to do a lot of things for the Lord and to work very hard in a culture and environment where it's easy. And folks, can I be honest? That's the culture environment we get to live in. Compared to most of church history, We have it pretty easy when it comes to the ability and the freedom to serve Christ. Now, it's not easy anywhere on the planet because Satan's after us all, isn't he? But Jesus says, I know your works, Ephesus. I know your labor, and I know your patience. I know that you've accomplished all of this while you've been under great pressure, persecution, great strain, and great stress. And the Lord notices that. Aren't you thankful the Lord didn't just say, I know everything you've done. 
I know. He says, no, I know what you've done. I know how hard you work to do it. And I know how patiently you've endured under pressure while you've been doing those things. And what a loving, merciful God we have as he approves this church. Number four in that list. Look at verse two again. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. How you cannot bear them that are evil. Number four, I put down this. Protected the integrity of the church. This was a church that was concerned about protecting Maybe integrity wasn't the best word, but protecting the atmosphere, the integrity of this church. I find this interesting that this comes right after him acknowledging their patience, right? You were patiently willing to endure under pressure as you served me, but here's what they were not willing to patiently endure. Wickedness. Wickedness. Verse number two, let me read it again. He says, you cannot bear. That word bear means you can't put up with. You don't, not, not, in a, not in a fleshly sense, but you don't put up with those that are evil, living an evil lifestyle. The church was patient, but not with those that were working against the Lord. Folks, listen. God hung on a cross to pay for sin, didn't he? We should see evil and wickedness and sin as, the scripture says, as exceeding sinful. And one of, the, one of the responsibilities of a church is to acknowledge and in a, being led by the Spirit of God, being filled with the fruits of the Spirit to confront evil and sin and wickedness, isn't it? Now, that's a hard ministry in the church, isn't it? But here's a church that says, We're going to work for God. We're going to labor for God. We're going to patiently endure, but we're not going to patiently endure those that are going to live and work against the Lord. And he takes it a step further in the rest of that verse. He says, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Number five, I wrote down this. This was a church that exposed false teachers. Exposed false teachers. Now, you've got to think about it for a minute. There's not a whole lot of churches, they haven't established a great, well, they've established a good influence in Asia Minor, but not the way we think of it in American culture. There are false teachings galore in Ephesus and in Asia Minor, and especially in Ephesus, this false teaching of the Princess Diana. If you want to see the culture of the world and what it was like when these apostles went in, all you've got to do is go back and read Acts chapter 19. You'll see how hard it was to go in with a gospel testimony in the city of Ephesus. But this was a church that was working, that was laboring, that was laboring under great stress and strain, that was protecting the integrity of the church, that was exposing false teachers. And number six, verse number three says, it was a church that, here's how the scripture says it, you, thou hast born. In other words, it's the idea of carrying their burden. I think about, there's differing, differing, differing opinions on verse 3. Is it sort of an extension? Is it a result of what they're doing in verse 2? In other words, because they're exposing false teachers and because they're not allowing evil in the church, are they having to even bear more burden? Here's, the, here's what I mean by that. 
There's enough burden when those outside of the church are trying to hinder the work of God, right? What if what you're facing as a Christian in the church that you were serving is was not only the pressure from outside the church, but what if you had false teachers in the church that were trying to teach against what you were preaching and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ? And all of a sudden you try to confront that and you're under even more pressure, not just from those outside of the church, but from those claiming to be in the church. Number six, they're carrying their burden patiently. And then I love number seven. Here's what Jesus says about them. Verse three, you have borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not, what? Fainted. You haven't fainted. Number seven, and we could have split that up even more, but for time's sake, you haven't fainted. Here's a church that is working themselves to exhaustion. God says you are, your effort is noticed by me, your toil and your labor. You're doing it under great pressure. You're being attacked. There's evil people you're having to confront. There's false teachers that you're having to confront. You're even under more pressure. But here's the thing Jesus says, but you haven't fainted. Be not weary in well-doing. For in due season ye shall reap if you, what? Faint not. Folks, listen. There are days and weeks and months where it is hard to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Where it seems like this is getting hard. My, maybe it's a family member that's, that's in a, um, a, a conflict with you. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone you've been trying to reach with the gospel for years and you just can't reach them. And it just feels like this labor, this burden is getting too hard. Is it even worth it? Folks, listen. The Lord Jesus Christ from heaven is working in his church and he sees that you're serving, that you're laboring at times, that you're suffering, and he sees that you haven't fainted. Don't throw in the towel on the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, as we sing, onward Christian soldiers, right? We know we're in a battle. We know we're in a war and war is never easy. The description of the church, we see the approval. Here's, here's my favorite thing about this whole description. It's two words. You ready for it? I know. All of those things that we just listed, Jesus says, I know. There are some of you that do things in this church, and it's, it's behind the scenes. It's in a restroom fixing a toilet. It's painting a wall. It's sweeping a floor. It's washing some toys in the nursery so the babies don't get sick. Listen to me. He knows. He sees everything that you and I do for him. And he acknowledges it. And he's writing it in a letter to this individual church. And he's listing it in heaven, in his omnipotent mind, the works that you and I are doing for him. He says, here's the way I describe this church. I approve all of these things. And there's one more. We didn't even have time to get to it, Harley. But look at verse 6. This thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. There's lots of ideas of what that might be. You can boil it down to this. They hated another group of false teachers that were teaching a false doctrine. Either the idea of elevated um, leadership authority, which eventually led to apostolic con- uh, succession, right? The, which led to the Catholic Church, thinking that the popes had authority higher than the scriptures, right? 
Some believe that that idea of Nicolaitan's doctrine was that. Some believe it goes back to the doctrine of Balaam. But the point that I, I think it's important to notice is this. We are told today in the culture, in the world that we live in, look, doctrine divides. Doctrine divides, so just don't really focus on the doctrine so much. Just focus on loving people. Folks, listen. Jesus is listing a list of reasons that he approves what this church is doing. And here's, here's the words that he uses. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And if you go down to verse 15, he says later, it's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that the next church is standing against. So here's Jesus approving a church because, listen, they are standing for doctrine. If you don't have doctrine, you don't have anything. Doctrine is just simply a word that means the teachings of Scripture. So you've got to stand for, doctrine is the word of God. So here's the church that's approved for all of these wonderful things, but there's one problem, right? And he describes that problem in verse number four. He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Is it possible to be working and serving and laboring and even suffering under great pressure and, and standing up for right doctrine and exposing sin and confronting people who are living evil and wicked lives. Is it possible to be doing all that and not be loving the Lord? I don't know about you, but in my life, if I really stop and think about it, it's easy to do that. You say, well, how, how could that be easy? Well, for time's sake, we're not going to have time to do this. But if you write down this passage, Malachi, chapter number 1, verse number 11 through 13, you'll see an Old Testament group of believers who were going through all the motions, doing all the right actions, but they had lost, they had fallen out of love with the Lord Jesus. And by the way, here's what Jesus says to this church, and we're out of time. He says, You've left your first love. In the very next verse, he says this. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place. What happens if we aren't serving out of love for the Lord? Our service soon becomes a duty rather than a delight true if i'm not doing what i'm doing for because i love you jesus i want to serve you i want to use whatever little bit of abilities and talents you've given me i want to use them for you if we're not doing it because we love him and for him that service becomes a duty rather than a delight it becomes a drudgery rather than a blessing it becomes something i have to do rather than something i get to do And folks, it is so easy, especially, listen, when you are serving and working and laboring and serving and working and laboring, it is so easy to lose sight of who we're doing this for. And all of a sudden, it just becomes labor, right? It just becomes work. It's not a sacrifice of love that we're giving to God. It becomes just a service of duty and demand. 
And Jesus says, listen, if you don't go back to the first works, if you don't go back to that most important work, which Jesus said what is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first work that we're supposed to be focused on. He's not, he's not saying don't stop, stop working. He's not saying stop laboring. He's saying you better go back and make sure you're laboring for the right reason. See, the motivation for what we do is as important to God as what we do. The motivation for what we do is as important to God as what we do. And that, I believe, is, is sort of what Jesus is trying to do. Right now in this passage, if you will, Psalm 51, 16 through 19. David gives us a testimony of that reality. Number four, real quick. I'll just give you these to fill in the blanks, basically, and we'll be done. Number four, after describing the church, the Lord gives the, a command to the church. The command of the Lord, and it's got four R's. Letter A, remember. Remember. From whence thou art, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Letter B, repent. Repent. Letter C, repeat. Do the first works. Hey, stop for a minute and remember. What was it like when you first trusted Christ as Savior? Why were you serving Him? Why were you coming to church? Why were you doing what you were doing? Hey, listen, if you've left your first love, repent. Change your mind. Oh, man, I've been serving out of duty, not because I love you, Lord. Repeat. Go back and do the first works, and here's the fourth R. You ready? Or remove. Remove. If we don't remember, repent, and repeat and do the first works, God says the only other option is removal. Removal. You say, what do you mean by removal? He's not talking here about losing your salvation. He's talking about, I'll stop using you in my service. If you're not usable, if you fall out of love with the Lord and service becomes a duty, it won't be long before you're not serving at all. And then the, the candle's barely even flickering, the light's barely even shining, and the Lord says, and I won't use you. Now, here, here's what I mean by that. 1,900 years ago, the church was a burning, bright light in, in Asia Minor. Guess what's there today? Nothing. There is no church there burning bright in Asia Minor like it was 1,900 years ago. None of these seven churches exist today. And here's the thing. If you think back through history, you think about churches that were burning so brightly. We think about the church at Jerusalem in the first century church. It's not there anymore. There's still a church there. There's still Christians. I know what I'm saying, but it's not burning brightly like it was in the first century. I think about England in the days of Spurgeon. Man, there's a church that's on fire for God. You know, I, I heard a testimony by someone, I don't remember who it was, just recently, a man who went to the church where Spurgeon preached at for all those years, and he went to a service, and he said he walked in, and he was just taken back. Hardly anybody there. The place was dead as a doornail. And it just reminded him, if we don't do what we're doing because we love God, here's what God said, I'll stop using you. And you look through history, and when churches took their eyes off the Lord and they stopped doing what they were doing for him, it wasn't long before God said, okay, I'll use somebody else then. Now praise God for his mercy that he's always lifted up a church somewhere else. 
But listen, I don't want Valley Baptist Church, and I don't think you want Valley Baptist Church to be a building on a hillside in 50 years that's decaying with nothing going on in it. Can I tell you how to make sure that doesn't happen? Fall in love with Jesus. And folks, listen, that's the only way to make sure that doesn't happen. Here's God's counsel, and we'll be done. Number five, the counsel of the Lord. It's verse number seven. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. Here's the counsel God gives. Are you listening? Are you listening to the letter I wrote to the Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus? Tonight, may God help us not just to let a message like this go in one ear and out the other, but hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have the privilege, and we do tonight, of getting to hear this message, then don't just get to hear it. Choose to hear it and believe it and apply it. There's a lot of questions about the end of verse 7. We're out of time tonight, but we're going to talk about that. What does it mean to be an overcomer? In each of these, into these seven churches, he talks about that. And some people are scared of that statement because it almost looks like, oh, no, what if I'm not an overcomer, is that mean to lose my salvation? That's not at all what it means. And we're going to talk about it in the next few weeks, all right? Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to love him first and foremost more than anything else. Father, we love you tonight. And Lord, we don't want those just to be words. Lord, we're coming up on these meetings that we call revival. And Lord, really, that's what revival is. It is coming back into a right relationship with you. Lord, thank you that we don't need to be, Lord, given life, but we need to be revived. Thank you that you gave us life the moment we trusted you as the Savior. We were born again to the kingdom of heaven. But Lord, I know in my life, and I'm certain in many of these, my friends tonight, Lord, we do need to be revived. And Lord, specifically tonight, our love for you needs to be revived. Lord, maybe there's somebody here tonight and they have found themselves serving just out of duty. And Lord, it's become just a, a chore. It's become a job rather than a sacrificial service for you. Lord, would you confront us tonight? Help us. Lord, help us to keep serving. Help us to keep working. Lord, help us to do it because we love you. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, we don't want to be a church that's got an empty building that's decaying because we've forgotten you. So tonight, in this moment, may we bow before you. May, Lord, we acknowledge and reaffirm that we love you. And then, Lord, in the days and weeks and months to come, may we have a thriving relationship with you. Lord, that, Lord, is before all the service. Lord, the one needful thing, may we choose it tonight, and that is you. Eyes are closed tonight, heads are bowed. The piano's going to ask the piano to play two verses tonight. Will you talk to the Lord? If you'd like to come and kneel here at the altar, certainly you're invited and welcome to do that. Will you do business with the Lord there at your seat? If your love has grown cold for Jesus, rekindle it tonight. Humble yourself, repent Acknowledge it and repeat and do the first works. You pray tonight as the piano plays.